Amen. It is so good to see you. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, however you celebrated it, whoever you celebrated with, friends or family, wherever you celebrated. I know it seems like most of our church had to go away for Thanksgiving. And for those of you who celebrated here or made it back, we're thankful to celebrate all that God is doing. We're kicking off everything Christmas today. It is an exciting time of year for us as a church, for the church to celebrate Christmas. If the forest of Christmas trees behind me didn't give it away, the text for today and everything else will certainly point towards the celebration of Christmas. And as we celebrate Christmas, we're going to spend a significant amount of time studying the Christmas story from Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. I was thinking about it over the course of the last several months as I was preparing for this study. I was thinking, what is it that we celebrate at Christmas? We celebrate the Christmas story. And every year, we read the Christmas story, probably from the beginning of Matthew or Luke chapter 2. But I wonder if often, in our familiarity, we just read it really quickly. And we would never say this, and I don't think we believe it, but we almost treat it like a fairy tale. Like it's just this really cool story that we all get together and celebrate once a year. Christians and non-Christians alike will read the Christmas story. We're going to spend a pretty significant amount of time doing a deep dive into Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 because I think the Christmas story in Luke's gospel tells us who Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to call our Christmas series. It's a study that Christmas reveals who he is. And we're going to see over the course of the next several weeks, starting with today, that Jesus is the answer to our prayers. Jesus himself is the answer to our prayers. We're going to see that he is the promise fulfilled. He is before all things. He is preeminent. He is present. He is here with us. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to celebrate that Jesus is the Savior of all. And so over the course of the next several weeks, I encourage you to join us. Bring your Bible with you. If you didn't bring it today, go ahead and bring it next week because we're going to spend some time in this studying seeing who Jesus is. And so with that in mind, if you got your Bible, Luke chapter 1, I would like to read starting in verse 5. I'm going to do something we never do here at Eastside. We're going to do it over the course of the next several weeks, but I want our recovering Catholics to feel at home. So stand with me as we read God's Word. All right, stand with me. Then we'll kneel and pray. Then we'll stand and sit no, down. Just kidding. Just stand with me. Let's read God's Word together. Luke chapter 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were, bef- they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense." And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How will this be? How shall I know this? For I am an old man. My wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you the good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them because he remained mute. And when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege to gather together this week as your people, uh, to sit under the authority of your word, to hear the things that you would say to us. And so, Father, our prayer is very simple this morning. As we gather together to make much of you, give us eyes to see the things that you would say to us. Give us ears to hear. Help us to see what, we, what you see, to want what you want, that we might leave looking more like you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, amen. Please be seated. All right, so that's the start of the Christmas story. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 and following. And I know as we were reading that, we were a few verses in, and you thought, this isn't the Christmas story, right? The Christmas story starts in a census which was issued in the days of Caesar Augustus, right? It's this, the Christmas story starts with the birth of Jesus. At the same time, as I look around at our culture, we set up and celebrate Christmas on like November 1st, right? As soon as is, uh, uh, Halloween is over, what's that holiday we celebrate in October? Halloween is over, we start celebrating Christmas. Forget about Thanksgiving altogether. But we do that because even as a culture, as a secular culture, we look forward to Christmas. And there is something about those traditions that create excitement, that make us appreciate the arrival of Christmas even more. The small things that seem to point to the celebration of Christmas. Carissa and I talk about this all the time, that it seems like every year Christmas comes faster and faster, and we never have enough time to do all the things we want to do. Decorate the house, or put the Christmas lights up, or watch the Christmas Christmas movies or go uh, see the, the fake snow that they, they pretend like we're celebrating Christmas up north somewhere in a winter wonderland. So this year, we started making a list of all the things we want to do before Christmas gets here. And in doing so, just to create that sense of excitement for us and for our little girl so that when Christmas arrives, it'll all make sense. I say that because the story of John the Baptist, and even before the birth of John the Baptist, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth helps pave the way for the Christmas story. Even though most of the time when we celebrate Christmas, we skip right past John the Baptist, the story of John the Baptist helps us understand and appreciate the work that God did through the sending of his son. And so we're going to look through it relatively quickly. We're going to wrap it up uh, talking today about how Jesus is the answer to our prayer. So we read it in its totality. I'm going to read it pretty quickly. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And I love this. I know we spent a significant amount of time studying Luke last year, but I love as Luke starts sharing his story, he shares the names and the dates and the places and the people because Luke wants us to see that the story of Jesus isn't a fairy tale, right? It doesn't start in a land far, far away. It starts with names and places, and the story of Jesus is set in history so that we can look back and we can see that the story of Jesus really took place. 
And I really want our church all the time, but especially this Christmas season, to be a place where people can come, our friends, our neighbors, our family, our coworkers, the people that aren't sure about Jesus, they can come and see that the story they grew up learning so much about, the Christmas story that they learned at Christmas Eve and the grandma talk, took them to church, is real and can change their everyday life. In fact, we don't say this all the time publicly, but one of our goals is to reach unchurched or de-churched people who are leading in their place of work, who have walked away from faith, and we say we want to show them that the faith their grandma taught them about can change their everyday life. Because I think in some way, that is all of our story. Like, we grew up hearing these stories on the, the felt board or in Sunday school, and somewhere along the way, whether it was seamlessly in, in Sunday school or youth group or camp at some point or maybe in college or after college or maybe you're just making your way back to faith now, somewhere along the way, these stories that we grew up celebrating, they clicked. And we realized, man, these aren't just stories. This is the story of Jesus, and Jesus can change my everyday life. And so as we make our way through this Christmas study, Christmas reveals who he is. Each week, we want to dive into the story from Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 to help people see this is who Jesus is. And if we understand who Jesus is, he will change our everyday life. It's not a fairy tale. It's not made up. The story of Jesus is set in history. And so the story starts in the days of Herod, king of Judah. Uh, 3 or 4 BC, the, specifically we're going to zoom in on Jerusalem, we see a man named Zechariah. Now Zechariah says is of the division of Abijah, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her, na and her name was Elizabeth. Zechariah's job was to serve as a priest in Jerusalem. And uh, he was married to the daughter of a priest and so he was a, a special guy uh, living a very special life. It says, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, when I read this story, I get to that point, and I think, man, like, this is a really cool story. And I, but he's righteous, and he's walking blamelessly, and I think, oh, man, and how unrelatable. Because it sounds like Luke is saying Zechariah and Elizabeth are perfect, doesn't it? They just always do what is right. Is that what Luke is saying? No, he's, what he's saying is that they were following God as closely as they could. They lived under the Old Testament law, so they went through all the religious ceremonies and celebrations, and when they did sin, they offered a sacrifice for their sins, but nonetheless, it is true that Zechariah and Elizabeth, as closely as they could, were following after God, which just re reveals to us that following God is a choice that everyone can make. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were special because they were serving as priests, but they were just normal people following God as closely as they could in their context. I would love for it to be said of me now and for the rest of my life that we are in our church, that we are both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And that's why we call every week people to exchange the common for the holy. Like we want to lead people to experience immeasurably more. We want them to be a part of a story that is bigger than themselves, that it reaches beyond themselves. But the only way to do that is to exchange the common for the holy, to trade what we want, what culture is selling for what God invites us to. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, as we're introduced to them, they're righteous before God, it says, verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, again, I think this is one of those parts where we read really quickly because we're familiar with the story. 
And when Zechariah and Elizabeth are walking blamelessly before God, but they had no child, and we just keep reading because we know how the story ends. We know an angel appears, and they have John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is the greatest among women, and we can like start to fill in the gaps. But this story was very real for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Like They had no child, and that's probably all they thought about. Because in those days, I mean, having being barren today is hard, right, for people who have lived through it. But, but in those days, it was everything. Because they didn't have anyone that would provide for them in their old age. They had no one to carry on their name, no one to pass on their property or their legacy to. And so it, it, I've circled in my Bible, I actually put brackets around verses 6 and 7, because it kind of surprises me that Luke says, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were holy and blameless, they were walking closely with God, and but they had no child. And doesn't it seem that that's a little counterintuitive. Like they were doing everything they could to follow God as closely as they could. They were going through all the ceremonies. When they sinned, they offered a sacrifice for their sins. They were serving as priests before God. Zechariah was serving as priests before God. Elizabeth was supporting him in his ministry. Their entire life was dedicated to advancing the work of God and following God. But the thing they wanted more than anything else was, a, was not part of their life. And I wonder how often we fall into the trap I know I fall into the trap of thinking, man, if God isn't bestowing the blessings on my life that I want God to bestow on my life, man, where did I go wrong? And certainly it's true. God doesn't honor or bless disobedience. But sometimes, sometimes we can be walking blamelessly with God and things don't go the way we want them to go. Have you ever been there in life? I mean, we could give countless examples. Maybe your story is a lot like Elizabeth's story. Like you're following God as closely as you can. You show up and you go to church and you serve in church. You've even served in kids' ministry. More than anything else, you just want a kid and God doesn't give you a kid. Maybe you have a kid and you watch them walk away from God and more than anything else, you're just praying, God, bring my child back, bring my child back, bring my child back. And you go to church and you serve in church and you pray and it just seems like God isn't doing what only God can do. Maybe you want a family, you want a relationship, and you, you go to church, and you serve in church, and you are the church, and you show up week in and week out, and you say, God, I just want to find the perfect person to share my life with and serve you with, and you have a, a pure heart and a holy motive, and it just seems like the blessings of God are not flowing the way you want them to flow. It's hard when we follow God, but what I think this shows us is right here at the start of the story that Mary and Elizabeth, I'm sorry, Zechariah and Elizabeth were living in the same world we live in that was suffering from the fallout of sin. It was fractured at a cellular, cellular level that everything was broken because of the sin that separates us from the blessings of God. But in those days, like I said, barrenness and the lack of get, barrenness was not just uh, difficult practically for them, not having an heir to care for them in their old age before Social Security or Medicare or any kind of disability was a program. In those days, the lack of God's blessing, the only reason they would thought God would not bestow his blessing was because they had some kind of secret sin. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, like they are faithfully following God as closely as they can. They're serving in the temple to advance the, the work of God for the people of God. At the same time, the people of God certainly, almost certainly would have been talking about them behind their back. Man, I wonder what Zechariah and Elizabeth's secret sin is. Why is God not blessing them? It looks like everything is good, but we know. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth were dealing with the fallout of that. They were old and advanced in years. We don't know exactly how old they are. Historians guess somewhere between 60 and 80, if not into their 80s. But nonetheless, what Luke is saying is they'd certainly given up hope that God would give them what they wanted more than anything else. I'm sure they had prayed and prayed and prayed, and God just had not answered their prayers, so they stopped praying. Verse 8 says this, though. It says, Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, 
he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, I think this is one of the coolest verses in all of, all of this story. Because we have Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're blameless before God, but they're barren, they're struggling. Uh, they would have questioned God, certainly. They would, people would have been questioning them. And then it just goes on without missing a beat. It says, now while he was serving. Zachariah was still showing up to serve God even when he had questions, even when it certainly would have felt like God was far away, even when it would have felt like God wasn't answering his prayers. Have you ever felt like that? Like, have you ever felt like God is far away in your mind? Maybe you know enough about God to know that he's not far away, but in your mind, it feels like he's far away. Maybe it feels like he's not answering your prayer and you've just got this temptation from the enemy to pack things up and go home, to throw in the towel, to quit spending time with him, to quit serving, to quit giving, to quit showing up to community group, to quit showing up to worship, because it just feels like you're going through the motions and God isn't showing up the way you want him to show up. I think one of the best ways to push through those feelings which are certainly feelings, deceptive feelings from the enemy, is just to keep doing things, the things that God honors. If you've ever been in like a spiritual funk where it just feels like God is farther away than you know he is, I think one of the most helpful things we can do is just keep showing up. Keep showing up in your prayer time every day. So, I mean, God, I showed up yesterday and it felt like you haven't answered yesterday's prayer, so I'm not sure if I want to give you more prayers. But God just invites us, keep showing up. Exchange the common for the holy. Now, I came to church for four weeks in a row. I've got like perfect attendance for the month of November. I should take the week week off. God says, just keep showing up. Keep serving. Community group isn't going as well as you hope, but keep showing up. Keep giving. Keep sharing your convictions so they can spur you on towards love and good works. There's a temptation to quit showing up when it feels like God isn't showing up, but God honors those who keep showing up. Uh, Later in James chapter 4, verse 8, James, the brother of Jesus, would say, I think one of the most simple yet profound verses in all of the New Testament, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you've ever been in like a, a spiritual funk, a few weeks ago, I don't know what it was, it kind of came out of the blue. I was just like in a prayer funk. Have you ever been in a prayer funk where like you keep praying because you know you're supposed to pray, especially if you're a pastor, you're tell people you pray like, so I keep showing up every morning before the sun came up at the bar with my Bible, coffee in hand, I pray. Just I mean, God, I just don't feel the intimacy with you that I felt before. And it's like, man, I'm, I'm going to keep praying because I have to pray. And then over the course of a few days, like I just realized I kind of got lax in my prayer time. I came back to him one day in my prayer journal and I wrote, God, I just know the promise of God is this, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I need you to draw near to me. And I just prayed. And it was amazing. I was, I was telling my, my wife, it just like in a moment, God drew near. And I can't explain it. Maybe you've been there though. When we draw near to God, the promise of God is that he will draw near to us. Zechariah is still serving, even when it seems, because Zechariah is still showing up, even when it felt like God wasn't showing up. Now, we should, we should celebrate Zechariah. We should follow his example. At the same time, we should realize, in all fairness, this was his job, right? He didn't really have a choice. His job was to show up and to serve in the temple. Uh, in those days, there were 24 divisions of priests with approximately 900 priests in each division. So roughly a grand total of about 21,600 or so priests. And each division would serve one week every six months. So this was Zechariah's time to show up and serve. And Zechariah was serving, and when they would serve, uh, they would cast lots to figure out whose job it was to do the different tasks of the day. They'd clean up the temple grounds. They would clean up from the sacrifices from the day before. They would replace the showbread. But the most special task in those days was to go into the, the, the temple and to uh, light the incense on the altar of incense. 
And Zachariah was chosen. It was, it was something that was so special that people would only, priests would only be chosen if they were lucky to do it one time in their life. Zechariah had been serving for his entire life, maybe you know, 60 or so years as a priest, but this was the day he was chosen by Lot to go into the temple. One of the things I think is so fascinating about that is the incense. Everything in the, in the temple was ceremonial and everything was symbolic. And we could spend hours kind of dissecting the symbolism of the temple and every other furniture and pieces that were in there and how they tie into the Garden of Eden, tie into the redemptive story. But the altar of incense, just for time's sake, was there in the temple just outside the curtain for the Holy of Holies. And it was to be lit in the morning and in the evening by the priest. So they would always be burning. And the smoke and the, the, the fragrance going up from the altar of incense was to be representative of the prayers of the saints going up to God. And so Zechariah has been praying, and he's going in now to light this incense. He's praying for the people of God uh, as he lights the incense to represent the prayers for the people. So very quickly, Exodus chapter 30, as God's giving instructions for how the, the altar is to be built, he says this. He says, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Then he goes on later, he says this, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is before the Ark of the Testimony. So it's just outside of the Holy of Holies, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, uh, where I will meet with you. I think that's so cool, where I will meet with you. And Aaron, who was the, the first priest, shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. And so this, this piece of furniture and the incense that was burned on, incense that was burned on, it was there to represent the prayers of the saints going up to God. Later, David in the Psalms would, would talk about, it. he said, oh Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. He's praying and he says, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you in the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. It's so powerful that the symbolism that's here, what, what Zechariah is doing is he's going in to, to do the... Uh, to take care of the altar of incense, to light the incense so that it would continue to burn. It's representative of the prayers of the people going up. And Zechariah is offering the incense, verse 10, it says, and the whole multitude of people were praying outside of the hour of incense. And then verse 11, it says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. And this is what I have circled in my Bible. And this is what I want us to hone in on. The story before Christmas says this. He says, for your prayer has been heard. So Zechariah, think about it. Zechariah is going in. He's, he's doing, he was showing up for work just like he'd done every, you know, every six months or so to serve as a priest. Today he's chosen by law to go into the temple to prepare the altar of incense. And he's, and he's in, the, in there where by himself preparing the altar of incense, lighting the incense. He's praying for the people. And all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appears up. And the angel says to him, do not be afraid. Because every time an angel appeared, people were afraid. He says, and then he says to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will bear, uh, will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him, before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So think about this. As Zechariah is praying, God has been silent for 400 years. 
from the book of Malachi to the time of Zechariah's prayer, God has been silent. The prophets have gone silent. The Spirit of God has stopped speaking. And Zechariah is in the presence of God, praying for the people of God. And an angel shows up. He says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Which begs the question, what was Zechariah praying for? Every time I read this story, I just assumed Zechariah was praying for a son. I mean, this was the prayer that him and Elizabeth had prayed from the time they were married. Probably when Zechariah was a young boy, before he was even married. God, just give me a son someday. A son that I can name Zechariah, that I can carry on my name. He can serve as a priest, as I've served as a priest. That was his dream. And then him and Elizabeth got married, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. God, bless us with a son. And maybe the first few years of marriage, the, the, the child wasn't coming. And they just continued to pray, God, we know you can. We serve you faithfully. We walk closely with you. We offer the sacrifices. We're doing everything we can. God, please give us a son. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. But I wonder if by this point, when they were old and advanced in years, well past the age or ability to have children, that they had just kind of given up on that prayer. I think they probably had. I really doubt that Zechariah was there at the, most, the high point of his career as a priest, offering the incense, praying, God, give me a son. I think Zechariah was praying for the people of God, for the renewal or the redemption of the people of God. And I wonder... Though it doesn't say this, is part of that redemption if Zechariah wasn't thinking through the prophecies and the promises of God and praying for the redemption that would come through the Messiah. And an angel shows up and he says, your prayer has been heard. And he's going to say, you're going to have a son. But I wonder if he says, your prayer has been heard. He's saying, your prayer, your big prayer for the people of God, for the coming of the Messiah who will redeem God's people, that prayer has been heard. And it's going to be answered. And not only is that prayer going to be answered, but the prayers that flow downstream of it are going to be answered. And you are going to have a son. It's going to seem too good to be true. In fact, we're not going to cover it today. But Zechariah says, how can this be? And an angel says, I stand in God's presence. Like, I stand in the presence of God. I have it on good authority that what I say is going to come true. But nonetheless, when he shows up, he says, your prayer has been heard. And I think the prayer he's talking about isn't just the prayer for a son. It's the prayer for a savior, that the Messiah would come. And so it sets the stage for the Christmas story. But where does the plane land for us today? Here's the question I have. And here's who I want us to see Jesus as, that Jesus is the answer for our prayers. When you think about prayer, what comes to mind? I remember growing up, we'd always pray before meals and we'd pray before bed. Your parents ever do that with you? Pray before meals, pray before bed. It was the same prayer same prayer before meals every day. I mean, it was the same prayer before bed every day. But we prayed, and I appreciate the example they set for me. So, like, that's one of the first prayers that come to mind. And then as I, you know, got a little older, I started praying on my own because I grew up in church, and they said pray. And so, like, give you a middle school or high school, and you, you know, pray for the really cute girl to notice you. And God never seemed to answer that prayer. But nonetheless, I, like, I learned to pray. And then my prayers just got more and more serious. One day in college, God finally answered that prayer for middle school, and I married the first girl that you know, took notice of me. But nonetheless, you, the prayer life just kind of develops. And I realized about six or seven years ago, honestly, if I was just being fully honest with you, I was serving a full-time vocational ministry. I was leading a church. I just felt that God had answered every prayer I'd prayed, more or less. He's blessing me. And I was kind of auditing my prayer life, and I realized my prayer life was just a bunch of requests of how I wanted God to bless my life. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking God to bless our life. I still, I ask God to bless my life. I ask him to bless my family, my friends, my community group, and all of you. Like, if God would bless us, I would greatly appreciate that. But my prayers, when I realized that I started auditing my prayer life, I was like, man, my prayers are more about what I want God to do for me than who God is. 
as we think about the Christmas season, I was kind of treating God like this, this Santa Claus, where if I just do the good things that God calls me to do and keep in step with him as closely as I can, he'll just bless me. And we look at this story, we see that's not the kind of prayer life that is celebrated in the New Testament. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were doing the right things. They were, they were uh, following the law of God as closely as they could. It seemed like God wasn't bestowing blessings on them, and still they prayed. We have no idea what God will do in our life, or even better, through our life, when we pray, and we pray, and we pray. I was in my prayer time this week, I kid you not, and I was thinking about this sermon. I was in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, and this text stood out, and I want to share it with you. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And we, we could dig into the context, but more or less what Paul is saying, see to it that no one sells you something other than Jesus, that there's a shortcut to get the things you want from this world. They were all kinds of false teachers that were trying to take the church and twist their view of Jesus and say, hey, if you just do this, or if you just follow that way, or if you just do this, you'll get what you want from life. He says, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I mean, that's the Christmas story, isn't it? Like, that's where we're going to get, you know how the story ends. There's going to be a baby, it's going to be born of a virgin, it's going to be placed in a manger, and it's going to be God in the flesh. Paul is thinking about that when he writes to the church, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of God, the deity dwells bodily. And then he goes on, he says, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And then the next breath, Paul says, and you, the church, those who put their faith in Jesus, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I was reading that. I was thinking about this text from Luke chapter 1, and I just realized Jesus is, in fact, the answer to our prayers. Jesus is everything we need. When Paul says you have been filled all throughout Colossians, he says you've been filled in Christ. You've been filled. You've been filled. Meaning you have been filled. You are full. That everything we need is found in Jesus. All of our needs are met in Christ. All of our joy, all of our contentment, all of our satisfaction, all of our purpose, everything we need and everything we are is found in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't bestow other blessings on our life, but what is the purpose of our prayer life? It's not to treat God like this cosmic vending machine where we show up and we push the right cos uh, uh, combination of buttons and what we want pops out. God isn't a God to be manipulated. He is, the purpose of prayer is to know God. It is relational. It is that we can know the God who created us and loved us enough to send his son to draw us near to him. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. I love how Paul says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells by all. You've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed and felt like God wasn't answering your prayer? Certainly that is all of our story. I'm sure as I'm talking, something comes to mind. Maybe, maybe it was, God, if you would just give me some evidence for who you are, I would follow you faithfully. God, if you would just draw my family close to you. God, if you would just reveal yourself to me. God, if you would just give us a child. God, if you would just provide for my needs. God, and it just seems like God wasn't drawing near. Here's what I want to encourage you as we start into this Christmas series. We want to invite you, no matter where you are in faith, whether you've been following in faithfully for a long time, you just feel like you have this fruitful spiritual life right now. If you're just trying to figure this out, or maybe you're in a funk, just pray. And I know that sounds so profound. I showed up to church and the pastor told me I'm supposed to pray. No, but just really like pray. Pray today and pray tomorrow and pray on Tuesday and pray on Wednesday and pray 
And they don't have to be profound prayers. People say, Adam, how do you pray? I say, just pray what you have. I pray for an hour every day before I start my day, and I pray every hour throughout the day. And it's sometimes I miss an hour, but more or less, I, I don't pray for long periods of time, but I don't go for long periods of time without praying. And I always pray, and I read God's word, and I drink a lot of coffee. I mean, it's not that profound, but, but pray. pray. The purpose of prayer is to draw close to God, that we might know him, hear his voice, and follow him. And if we will show up, and if we will know him and follow him, we will certainly watch him work. Now I know everyone that's gathered here today are friends and family, and you know our story well, but I tell our story over and over again because I think God graciously allows us to steward this story so other people are encouraged in their faith. Carissa and I's story started in some ways similar to Zachariah and Elizabeth. We had prayed for a long time. We were serving the Lord, certainly not without sin, but felt like we were following God as closely as we could. He was blessing our steps, and we felt like it was time to start a family. So we just started praying, God, give us a family, give us a family. And it, it, God didn't give us a family, not the way we hoped or the time frame we wanted that God operates with eternity in, in view. And over the course of our prayer and our fasting, started fasting with through seasons of fasting for the first time, God called us to start a church. We had no idea what that looked like. And, and through, this, through the faithfully following God, he gave us not just a family, but a church family. Obviously, God continued to bless us, and he gave us a daughter that was born on the original launch Sunday. But I've been thinking about that a lot over the course of the last several weeks in my prayer time. Like, I wouldn't know most of you if God didn't call us to start a church. I wouldn't have been a part of the baptisms I got to be a part of or watching the community groups grow or the discipleship. I, when I say we get to show up and follow Jesus with our favorite people, like I mean that. But God had to get us to a place where we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And then we started praying for the bigger things. My prayer started, God, just give me a family. Just give me a family, answer our prayers. We want a family, it's a holy desire. I know it's desires for me all throughout scripture. But I started changing my prayers and said, God, just help me see what you see and to want what you want. And God answered that prayer. He called us to start a church. And ever since, I always pray, God, help me see what you see and want what you want. And God has done immeasurably more than we could begin to ask or imagine. There have been seasons of heartache and hard times ever since. But more than anything, I think God answered our prayer. He said, this is how you can know me. And that is immeasurably more. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful that we get to gather together as friends and as family to celebrate who you are and what you're doing in our life and in our midst. Lord, we're thankful for this Christmas season. It's the season where your Holy Spirit starts to really, people begin to be receptive to the stirring and the prompting of your Holy Spirit to come back to church. And so all around us, God, are people who are far from you, who have probably not spent time in prayer and longer than we can imagine. And so, Lord, as we pray this week, we pray for them. We pray that you would use us to draw people to yourself through your church that we would always keep in mind the work you want to accomplish in us and through us. But God, at the same time, everyone in here is trying to follow you faithfully. For some of us, it seems really easy right now. For others of us, it just seems really hard. We keep showing up. We keep serving. We keep giving. We keep worshiping. We keep gathering in community. But Lord, it just doesn't seem like you're answering the prayers we pray, whether that's for health or family, for friends who are far from you. Lord, we're praying prayers for things that you want more than we want. We're praying for family members and loved ones and friends and neighbors and coworkers who don't know you. And we know that you want them to know you more than we want them to know you. God, we're praying for health and strength so that we can follow you faithfully and keep in step with you and, and love our family well, and love our friends well, and serve our community well. God, these are things that we know you want for us. It just seems at times like you're further away that you're not showing up the way we want you to show up. God, so I pray for my friends. I pray that we would continue to show up even if it doesn't seem like God is showing up the way that we want him to. That we would be encouraged in our spirit, that we would have strength 
that we might keep in step with you. God, I pray for our church family, everyone who calls Eastside home, those that are gathered here today, those that are traveling, those who are homesick, that this season might be a season where we experience presence and the power of God in a way that would just cause us to stand in awe of who you are. Zechariah had shown up to serve in that temple for as long as he had been alive. But on that day, as he prayed, you answered his prayer in the personal work of Jesus. Answer our prayers. Show us who you are and how you're working in us and through us. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.